Our Father, you are eternal God, the source of wisdom and knowledge. May you give us the sp a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ. And may you enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know what is the hope to which we have been called. Reveal yourself to us, for we can only know you if you give yourself to be known. We pray all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Now take your seats. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 110, where we have our message for this evening. Psalm 110. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of God. A Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it. The author of Psalm 110 is David, and the type of psalm that we've just read is what most commentators have identified as a royal psalm. And there are plenty of royal psalms in the Psalter. Um, many were written by David when Israel had established a monarchy. And the main theme embedded in these royal psalms is the theme of kingship, which is first revealed in Psalm 2, which sets the hope for the entire Psalter that the king will reign. And it's our covenant God who appoints the king to represent God to the people while representing the people to God. And, and what do we expect from our king? Well, we expect him to govern us. We expect the king to protect us to lead God's people in justice and in righteousness? Because we're reminded of God's covenant promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that from David's royal line, God will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. And so, beloved, the hope and expectation of God's people in the Old Testament, despite the failures of Israel's kings, despite the dying strength of the monarchy, was still the hope of an ideal king who would finally keep the kingship. And, and, and that's the hope of David's prophecy in Psalm 110, the coming of the ideal king. But what makes Psalm 110 unique is that this king is not only concerned with his kingship, but he's also concerned with his priesthood. And, and so as we shall, we shall see later is he's invested with the dual office of priest and king. And the blessing that we have today is that we know that this prophecy in Psalm 110, which was taught long ago, has been fulfilled in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is king and priest forever. And it assures us of what Christ is doing right now 
followed by what he promises to do on the last day, the day of his second coming. And so in light of this good news, I mean, shouldn't this make our hope much clearer and our, and our confidence much stronger, right? Now, perhaps you may be thinking, well, how can this be good news when I feel like the king isn't doing anything? Because I look around me, there's still evil in the world. There's still injustice. There's still suffering. There's still people dying. And so in the midst of all this, how many of us are tempted to give up the fight, whether it be the fight against sin or, or the influence of Satan, temptation, persecution, or perhaps we struggle with disbelief or the idols that compete for our hearts. And the question is, why is that? Maybe because we don't see Jesus. Maybe because we have given up trusting because we don't see the change in our circumstances. And it's that crippling of feeling of despair, isn't it? And we can't help but ask, what is, what is Jesus doing if he is king? Where is he when I need him the most? Does he even care? Now, these are all questions we all face. And so as we meditate tonight on Psalm 110, be encouraged, brothers and sisters, that Christ, our priestly king, is in fact reigning right now and has dominion over all enemies so that you can have confidence to overcome the power of evil. And so what can we know about our priestly king that gives us confidence? What can we know about him that gives us comfort? Well, there are four things I want us to think about in our passage. First, his royal exaltation. Second, his royal dominion. Third, his priestly mediation. And finally, his royal execution. His royal ex exaltation, royal dominion, priestly mediation, and royal execution. And so first we want to look at his uh, royal exaltation. And we can see that in verse one. If you look at verse one, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. You see that? Now apparently there are two lords there. We see that, it seems like there's two lords. And you may notice in your English translation that the first Lord there is in all capital letters and the second Lord there is in the lowercase letters. And so beloved, whenever we read Lord in all capital letters, what does that mean, right? It, it refers to Yahweh, which is the covenant name of our God. And on the other hand, the second title, Lord, in which David refers to as my Lord, is in the lowercase. And what does that refer to? where it refers to the Lord as Adonai in Hebrew. And so clearly there is a distinction between two titles that we see in verse one. But the question is, who is David's Lord? And why does Yahweh tell David's Lord to sit at his right hand? Well, the second Lord there is the anticipated Messiah. That's the answer. He's the Messiah. And that's David's Lord. And we see this in the New Testament Gospels, like in Matthew chapter 22, verse 41, where Jesus quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, to the Pharisees. And Jesus challenges the Jews to rethink their understanding of the Messiah. Because the Jews got it right to know that, yes, the coming Christ is a descendant of David. But what Jesus was highlighting was that David's Lord in Psalm 110 is not only David's son, but he is also God's son right? He's also God's son. 
And so when David prophesies in Psalm 110 that Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, David knew that his Lord is the divine son and his descendant. And the promise of David's offspring is to rule on his eternal throne. It's not only uh, we can see that it's David's Lord and it's David's Savior, but he's also our Lord and our Savior too. He's our Messiah. And to all who would trust in him for salvation and to confess that Jesus is Lord. And so what does it mean for Jesus to sit at God's right hand? Well, this is enthronement language, which is to be in the position of honor and power. And how did Jesus receive his enthronement? How did he receive it? Was it through glory? Was it, was it through glamour? No. But through what? Scripture says that he received it through suffering and then glory. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, verse 12, but when Christ had suffered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You hear that? He sat at the right hand of God. He had, first he had to suffer before entering his glory. Now, this was not the king that the Jews in the first century were expecting. Because what the Jews were expecting was a king who would restore to Israel the glory of David's monarchy. And this king would overthrow the Roman Empire and that, and, and, and that's what, that, was, that was their standard. Not someone like Jesus, right? A guy from Nazareth who claimed to be the son of God, who claimed to forgive sins. But then again, what did Jesus say about his kingdom? Well, in John chapter 18, he says to Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world, but rather his purpose for coming into the world is to what? To bear witness to the truth. And you think about it, and people today have the same reaction to Jesus, right? Don't they? They say, well, who cares about the truth? I mean, the truth is whatever you want it to be, and it doesn't matter. But listen, Jesus is not a liar, brothers and sisters, because Jesus is the, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he atoned for sins, and he had died on the cross for sinners like you and me. And so by overcoming death, we see his fulfillment of Psalm 110 in, Act, in Acts chapter 1, when he ascended into heaven and was exalted at the right hand of God. And it was there that he was invested with the position of honor and glory and power. But besides being in the position of honor and being exalted, what else is he told to do there? Well, this brings us to our second point, which is to think about his royal dominion. His royal dominion. We see his royal dominion in verse 1 where he's told to remain at God's right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means that the king is given the task of reigning on the throne. And so right now, brothers and sisters, he is reigning on his throne. And he's not some king like floating in the clouds or having a good time or playing his harp and is somewhat kind of detached from us. No, Christ is still at work. And because of his ascension, it's what marks his kingdom expansion by sending his spirit who unites us to him, who's building his church. And that even though we struggle now in the kingdom, and struggle now in the kingdom seems kind of small, Christ is still at work. And he continues to supply us with the grace and the power that we need to persevere. Amen?
And so yet one of the things that we don't often think about is the king's dominion against his enemies or against our enemies, which we'll see throughout this passage. And it brings to mind this kind of military imagery of a warrior king. And so the father is saying that it's not only until I make not until I make your enemies your footstool that the job is done, right? You still have work to be done. Well, and, and so we, we see where else is this Psalm 110? Well, we see it um, also interpreted in, by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, where Paul interprets it. He says, he, which refers to Christ, must reign until Christ has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So you see that? It's not only the father who will make them subject to the son, but the son will also make his enemies subject to himself. And so that's, and you see there, that's the, that's the mission of the Godhead, how they're in unison with this plan. How that's their mission um, to, to subject all, his, all, all Jesus' enemies under his feet in this age. Those enemies who rebel against his rule, who oppose his gospel, and to put them under the king's control. And that's why in verse two of our passage, Christ is commanded, if you see there, to rule in the midst of his enemies. Rule in the midst of his enemies. And that's his mission right now, isn't it? until they become footstools on the last day. And so what does it mean to be his footstools? Well, to be his footstools is a way of saying that his enemies are to be completely in submission to him. It's like what Joshua and his men did to the Amorite kings after defeating them. They pressed their foot on their necks. And what is that? It's a sign that their enemies are completely in submission. And you see that, that's, that's the picture of the ultimate end of all God's enemies, of all our enemies, that the last one being death on the last day. And that's our hope, brothers and sisters. But, as, but we also have to ask, right, what kind of enemies are we dealing with today? Well, it's not just the enemies who persecute Christians in hostile places, right? By kicking down doors or dragging them to jail or slaughtering men, women, and children from villages. But rather, I think the battlefront is the more subtle, the more unseen spiritual forces. Because it's not mainly flesh and blood, as Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 6, right? But against what? Rulers and authorities, cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil, and so you see, beloved, Satan and his demons, together with our sinful flesh and the world, are all determined to convince us to believe the lies that are contrary to the truth of God, that are contrary to the gospel. And so I know I remember a month ago, I picked up a recent book with an intriguing title. It's called The Gospel According to Satan. It's intriguing, right? Gospel according to Satan, but it was written by a Christian author named Jared Wilson, in which there he critiques eight lies about God that sound like truth. Like, for example, listen to this. Um, he says, God just wants you to be happy, right? You only live once. You need to live your truth. Your feelings are reality. Your life is what you make it. You need to let go and let God. 
The cross is not about wrath. God helps those who help themselves. Sound, found, sound familiar, right? And so these are just the few lies among many others out there that continue to spread, trying to sound like the gospel. Because it sells, doesn't it? It sells millions so that people buy the lie. Because no one wants to hear about the authority of Scripture, right? About sin, about God's wrath, or that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Nobody wants to hear that. And so when the lies of Satan appear to be almost global, as if the lies are drowning out the sound of the gospel, it may cause us to doubt if the king's message is really true, if Jesus is still really king. And so how do we know he's in control? Well, if we look at verse 2, we see, look at verse 2, we see that the scope of the king's dominion is much more expansive and much more effective than we think. In verse 2, we read there that the Lord sends forth from Zion the king's mighty scepter. See that? You know, in ancient Israel, the place of Zion is the city of Jerusalem. And so throughout the Old Testament, it has become a significant reference place for the dwelling of Yahweh. Right? For he says in Psalm 132, verse 14, This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Right? And just as the Lord dwells in Zion, who else dwells there? Well, so the king dwells there in Zion. The king dwells there in Zion to establish his rule. And we see this in Psalm chapter 2, verse 6. For I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so, beloved, where is Zion now? Right? Well, it's in heaven. It's the heavenly Zion. Not the Middle East. Not the land of Israel as we know it today, because as the writer of Hebrews describes Zion, it's the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so the king's scepter, which is also his rod and his staff, is said to stretch forth long and wide from Zion. And what does his mighty scepter signify? Well, it signifies the power of his rule. And it's his spiritual rule that has the power to reach hearts even the most hostile people against his kingship. And so how exactly does the king rule from Zion, right? Well, scripture tells us it's by his what? Word and spirit. Now, word and spirit. Now, that sounds simple, right? And it sounds unattractive, doesn't it? At least according to the world's standards. But that's the truth. And that's how the war is fought. Because Isaiah prophesies, right, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, For out of Zion shall go forth from the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so you see, beloved, it's really by his ordinary word, ordinary word that's faithfully proclaimed by the power of his spirit, which can win hearts for Christ. And so we see from Paul that God's word is powerful to destroy arguments, to destroy lofty opinions against God, so that what? Every thought be captive to obey Christ. And, and just think about your own life, right? Remember how dead you were in sin? How rebellious you were towards Christ's kingship? But think about in his rich mercy and his grace, he renewed your heart by the word of Christ to be your savior and your king. But for those who are still lost, those who still oppose his kingship, it's not too late. 
We continue to plead with them, right? We pray for them because the king can still turn an enemy into a friend and a child of Satan into a child of God. For the gospel is still what? The power of God for salvation. And so now, since we saw how Christ has dominion over against his enemies, we also want to think about how um, he rules in his royal dominion, right? Well, wait, how we want to think about how, how else does he rule in his royal dominion? Well, he rules um, his dominion with his saints. And we see that in verse three. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments, right? Now, the image that we see here continues this military imagery that the warrior king who goes to battle doesn't just go alone, right? But who goes with him? It's his people. It's his troops. They are the ones who go with him in battle. And how are the king's people being described here? Well, we see that they are a people who are willing in which they offer themselves freely. You see that? They offer themselves freely. And so these are not soldiers forced to join their ranks. They simply volunteered. It's like Isaiah when he heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. And so you see, it's not like the draft, right, in World War II, where the U.S. president sends you a letter wherein he says, like, if you receive a letter during the draft, you are hereby inducted for military service. If you do not comply, you are considered a deserter. And so we get the picture, right? I mean, the king's people aren't like the ones drafted into a war, but rather the king's peoples are the ones who are willingly responding to the call of duty. But how is it possible that the king's people are willing? How is it possible? Well, is it because of their bravery? Is it because they are some kind of super soldiers? Well, as we read this prophecy from our vantage point, we know that verse three has been fulfilled in Christ because it anticipated the day of Christ's power, right? Which already came in his ascension, where he reigns right now on his throne, where he has dominion over all things. And that's why you and I, as the king's soldiers, have been won over to Christ and are given the garment of his holiness in verse three. And we have been given obedient hearts, not because we have any righteousness of our own, right? But because of what? The righteousness of Christ, which we have received, and the power of the Holy Spirit who renews us, who, who raised us up with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly realms, Ephesians chapter 2, 6. And just to think about his ama amazing grace, I mean, it should give us great confidence and assurance, right? And we can be assured that God looks after us by governing, governing us with his word and spirit, which sounds weak to the world. But the truth is, it has life-giving power, enough to withstand the battle before us. And that's why we are, we are to be willing and to be ready to respond to the call of duty, to be salt and light in a world hostile to Jesus, whether it be in our vocations, right? our family responsibility, our friends, our neighbors. You see, when we are sent into the world, we are placed there by the king to serve him. And when we are faithful, who is glorified? 
God is glorified. And God will use the weak things in the world to shame the strong. And so what we need to do, time and again, is to reevaluate if we've been responding to the call of duty. And so ask yourself, right? Have I been presenting myself as a living sacrifice to Jesus? Am I like Isaiah saying, here I am, send me, O Lord? Well, if you haven't done so, then perhaps thinking about our Lord's exaltation and his dominion and how he graciously saved us to be his very own should give you motivation to serve your king. And so, beloved, remember this. Jesus doesn't leave us to fight the battle alone. Well, why? Because, again, he's ruling in the midst of all our enemies. And that's until they become his footstool. That's our hope. And that's our comfort as we persevere in this life. And just think when you still think that you, when you are still alone, right? Just when you think you're still alone in this fight. Well, look around you, right? Look around you in this room. You still have your brothers and sisters in Christ who are in this struggle with you. And that's why it's important to support one another and pray for one another, to build each other up in the body of Christ. And that even beyond these walls, we join the faithful few for Christ. And how do we know that? Well, we know that from the last phrase in verse three. It says there, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The dew of the youth will be yours. Now, the imagery there is kind of, is, is a highly poetic and commentators and scholars have trouble translating this, but it pictures for us how in the early morning when you wake up, right, when you look outside and you see an infinite number of dewdrops sped all over the world or all over the earth, and you see that it's a picture of how the saints of Christ look like, right? They are many in number across the land with the, with the quality of kind of this freshness like the morning dew and the strength of the youth to withstand the battle. And so remember, beloved, though we feel small and though we feel weak, yet the Bible tells us we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. And so be encouraged, be comforted knowing that our king is exalted, having dominion over all, and he is fighting for you. Now, as we move on in our passage, we come to an interesting shift from king's, the king's exaltation and dominion to now the third point, which is his priestly mediation. And we see this in verse four where David prophesies, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what's going on here? Well, first, it's important to note that there is an agreement or a covenant taking place between the father and the son. And we know that it's a covenant because the father is giving a promise or an oath to the son. You see that? It says there, the Lord has sworn. And the promise that the father has sworn to the son is a promise that cannot be broken, a promise that cannot be altered, because he says he will not, what, change his mind. And we see that all over scripture, don't we? That God has made covenant promises to his people like he made with Abraham or with Israel in which the Lord promises to be their God and they will be his people. 
So in the same way, as we think about God's promises, we can be rest assured that he has always been faithful, even though we have never been faithful. And so the promise that the Lord is making here with the son is that he's not only to be king, but what? He's also to be priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that's why he's our priestly king. And that's the function of the priest on behalf of God's people, right? So while it's helpful if we turn to the letter of Hebrews, because it's the only place in the New Testament where the writer has given much attention to the priesthood of Christ, especially as it addresses verse four in our passage. So in Hebrews chapter five, verse one, if you wanna turn there, the writer says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now what this verse helps us recall is the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament, right? Which played an important role in Israel because they were the priests from the tribe of Levi to represent the people to God and to deal with the people's sin. When God's people sin, right? If you remember, when they sin in the Old Testament, including the priests, the way it must be dealt with is by the high priest to offer animal sacrifices. And the way that they offered it, right, it's, it's, and they offered it with all its bloodiness, with all its gore, the smell, and so the wailing of animals. So just imagine that, it, it, it was a slaughter ministry. And it sounds strange when we read this, doesn't it? But back then, it was, and even now, it's still a perfect picture to demonstrate how severe the sins of the people were against the holy God. And a holy God cannot fellowship with his people if there is sin in the way. And the only way to amend the relationship is for sin to be atoned for by a bloody death. But what Hebrews is essentially arguing is that the Levitical priesthood could never ultimately satisfy for sins. He says it strongly in Hebrews chapter 10, verse four, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see that? And what that truth does is that invites you, right, invites you and I to reflect on our sinfulness in which you can never make right by any human means whatsoever, even our good works, because all of it is stained with sin, dug up from our sinful nature that we inherited from Adam. But the writer of Hebrews doesn't just leave us with the bad news, right? He reveals the good news, right? And he gives us fuller revelation on the basis of Psalm 110, verse 4 in our passage. But, and he quotes it several times in the book of Hebrews. And he explains clearly, clearly in Hebrews chapter 7 that there is a better priesthood, a better priesthood. There is an eternal priesthood, which the Lord has sworn to Christ even before the foundation of the world, that you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek, right? Who is this strange figure? Who is this, and he, he rarely just shows up in scripture. Yet we, we do know that he shows up in Genesis chapter 14 and Hebrews seven, that he had an encounter with Abraham in which after defeating several kings, Melchizedek suddenly appears who is described to be a king and a priest of God most high. And he blesses Abraham, right? And then he suddenly just disappears. Yet the God, yet 
God the Father, in his wisdom, uses Melchizedek to point to his son, who appoint, whom he appointed in the likeness of Melchizedek as our priestly king. And what, what Christ accomplishes is to satisfy what we can never do, what the blood of animals can never do, right? By offering himself as the ultimate atoning sacrifice for sin that though he was without sin, and yet death could never keep him. Why? Because he's the divine priest whom the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And so this changes everything, doesn't it? Right? Because right now, Jesus is our high priest seated at the right hand of God who prays for us, who intercedes for us, so that even though we feel weak and even though we feel defeated in the midst of our enemies, in the midst of our sin and our struggles, right? We could draw near to God with a clear conscience through Christ, our high priest. And so isn't that comforting? Isn't that reassuring? Knowing that we not only have a warrior king who fights for us, but we have a high priest who understands us because he, being human himself, is, is able to sympathize with us in all our weaknesses. And, and because he, he knows how we feel, he, he gives us the strength and the grace that we need throughout our pilgrim life. Yet there's more to the story than the fact that we are pilgrims right now in light of Christ who is reigning and interceding for us. It's not the end. Because what hasn't been fulfilled, right, as we see in Psalm 110, what hasn't been fulfilled and is yet to be accomplished in the finale of the king's royal execution, it hasn't occurred yet. So we see that in verses five and six. Five and six, where it says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And so do you see that? This is what God promises, promises to do in his second coming. This is what he promises to do on judgment day, to defeat all his enemies and all our enemies. Because on Judgment Day, which is the last day, the king will no longer have to rule in the midst of his enemies. He's no longer going to allow them to um, oppose his kingdom, but rather they will be what? They will be his footstool. And this shows us that his enemies aren't as strong as they think. And why? Because they have no source. They have no source of hope. They have no strength. And unlike the stamina of our king, which endures forever, is painted for us in verse 7, right, where he says, He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And so for all who oppose the king, it's really just a matter of time till Christ returns, right? Will they will, 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 until they eventually lose their strength and be pressed down with Christ's foot on their necks, pressed down in complete submission to be finally be judged and to finally be executed once and for all. But you know, brothers and sisters, but until that time, this entire prophecy, right, serves as both a warning and a blessed hope, right? Warning and a blessed hope for us. Because if you have not, because the thing is, if you have not bowed the need to Christ, right? If sin remains master over your life, that after you've heard the wonderful news of Christ, right? And his redemption, 
and, and then you know that it's true, and yet you have not placed your trust in the king, then as the writer of Hebrews warns us, there will no longer be a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume you. And that's the warning for those who deny Christ. Who don't, who, those who come, in, come here, you know, they hear the gospel and they, and they totally ignored it. They are members in the church. They hear it and they hear it. But really, in reality, they were never saved in the first place. Why? Because they oppose Christ in their hearts. And it will be revealed on the last day. But thanks be to God that God has pro prolonged our, our years and our time here on earth. Because his job is not done yet. His word and sacrament, right? His word and his spirit is still going out from his throne and is still being preached in the ordinary word and sacrament through um, weak men whose, whose words is not, whose, whose reputation is not really what matters, but it's the message of the gospel that's being uh, proclaimed out by the power of the Holy Spirit to, to implant that word in people's heart to give life. And so yet, now that we, now we understand that it's not only just a warning, but it is also a blessed hope. And on the other hand, if you are in Christ, right, if you've trusted in your only Savior, Jesus Christ, then you have much reason to be comforted, knowing that you are his and that your priestly king is reigning on high and is interceding for you before the Father so that you can have confidence, so that you can overcome, that whatever struggle and whatever evil that, that life throws at you, listen, you can persevere because you are his and he is yours forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are humbled by your word and the promises that we've just heard. And we thank you because you always give us great comfort and confidence when prophecies that were foretold long ago find its fulfillment in our only Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our King who rules and our priest who intercedes for us. And so may you help us now by the grace of your Spirit to live for the King and to, to find our rest in our high priest as we persevere in this age until you come again to make all things right. We pray all this in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen.